I've, uh, I've really been enjoying the study that we've been doing in Leviticus, and even though it was written um, not primarily for us as the primary audience, but for people about 3,500 years ago, it still carries a lot of truth and uh, goodness uh, and things that we can learn from. For example, and, and what we'll be talking about today is about living in community. And so if you, sometimes we get bogged down because it was written for a people that were in a different time. It was written for in different circumstances or different culture. And so sometimes we can get bogged down in the details or in the uh, certain specific laws and we miss the overall spirit of the law and what was intended. We find that as we look at Leviticus, especially these 18, chapters 18 through 20, that it really answers a lot of questions for us, really basic questions about the nature and the character of God. And we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, shortly. It talks about how to live life. Um, you know, just imagine if you were taken out of this culture that you were born into and you were placed in some of the tribes of Australia in the outback, the aborigine tribes, that you didn't know anything about, you'd be totally lost, and you would have to learn how to navigate life from other people. Uh, well, we all were born into this world, right, as babies, and we had to learn how to live and grow in life and how to interact. And most of us did that primarily through our parents and our families, but this was very much the case with the children of Israel. Remember, they had been 400 years in Egyptian bondage and now they were released and to go into the land of Canaan and they needed to know how to live in community and we're all going to live learning from someone else and God said and as was read in the reading I don't want you to learn from the Egyptians don't do as they did now, there are people in the land of Canaan, which I'm going to drive out, but you'll have some interaction with them, and I don't want you to learn from the Canaanites how to live. So who were the children of Israel to learn from? They were to learn from God. And uh, that's what Leviticus 18 through 20 is all about. It's about instructions on how to live in community together in peace and in harmony and in safety with order and not in chaos, confusion, and lawlessness. Now just imagine if you left here today and there were no traffic laws, it would be chaos out on the road and likely to cause harm to property and life. So there have to be laws, there have to be, has to be order that brings that about rather than confusion and chaos for the good of society. So I came up as I was reading and just noticing some of the things that were taking place in, uh, in the book of Leviticus that uh, first and foremost it tells us that um, our authority, the order of hierarchy in our society or in the children of Israel's society was to be from God. He was the ultimate authority. Leviticus 19.2 says, Be holy as I am holy, I am the Lord your God. 
And about 20, approximately 20 times in Leviticus 19, it's, it's tied to this phrase, I am your Lord, I am the Lord, you're to follow me. And this is why this law is put in place, because I am the Lord. And then notice line number two. So God is at the start of our, our hierarchy. He is the ultimate authority. And then look what's on line number two. Now, I came up with this triangle. This is not biblical, but, but I think it bears a lot of truth to it. Look at uh, line number two. You know, there are verses in Leviticus 18, 19, and 20 that talk about the honored place that our parents occupy in this hierarchy of society and its order. And uh, it says, honor your parents, right after verse 2 of 19. Honor your father and mother. Why? Because your father and mother are representatives of God to you. If they are following God as their ultimate authority, then they are teaching you, their children, to follow in the ways of God. And also ask us to respect our elders in Leviticus 19 and verse 32. It literally says, rise up at the gray-haired man. And I noticed that not one person stood up when I got up here. So we got a lot of learning to do. It, well, what it means is honor the elderly. Why? Because they've followed God all their life. They have a lot of practical experience. They have wisdom. And if society is run the way it should, the wisdom of the older, the elders, should be passed down to those who are younger. And in Leviticus, I believe it's 20, and uh, 21 and verse 8, it says, You shall consecrate the priest, set them apart, make them special, they are unique. Because he serves the bread of God for you. you be, or He shall be holy, it says, unto you. The reason these people occupy a higher level of authority in our society and their structure is because they represent God to the people. The priest was meant to represent God and to represent the people to God. So they occupy this place that should have a place of respect, honor, and authority. And then look at the next line down. This is where we would put ourselves. We would think about ourselves and say, okay, how do we interact in society that makes it a peaceful, uh, well-ordered society? Well, if we do that, we should treat our neighbor as ourself. I don't slander Rocky. I don't cheat Rocky in a business deal. I treat him fairly. I love him as I love myself. Leviticus 19, verse 16 through 18. It says, don't act against the life of your neighbor. Don't hate your countrymen in your heart. Don't bear a grudge, but love your neighbor as yourself. It also says in uh, Leviticus 19, verse 34, how we're to treat strangers or foreigners. And then it says, you treat the foreigner who is willing to live and dwell with you in your community as you would your neighbor. And then you love the foreigner even as you love yourself. Now, it, you see what the, God is doing. He's asking us to, to look at life 
in ways that flesh doesn't usually look at life. Look at life with different eyes. We've got to be imaginative, a bit creative with this. And imagine how we would love our neighbor as ourself and the foreigner as well. It also talks about treating those that we hired to work for us, treating them fairly and with respect. Don't hold their money overnight. They need that. If you've contracted with them to do a job, then don't hang on to that money and, uh, because they may be hungry. They need that. Treat them fairly. How do you treat the blind or the disabled or the deaf? Well, you don't ridicule the deaf person just because they can't hear you. You don't make fun of a blind person and put a stumbling block in his way because he can't see and then laugh when he trips because you wouldn't want them to treat you that way, would you? And, you know, even when he ties the, the treatment of a foreigner to uh, how we treat them, he says, remember that you also were a foreigner in Egypt. Ah, now God is saying, now remember, you too were a foreigner once. So you treat them the way you would want to be treated. Because you were in that category not long ago. So you can see that God has care and compassionate compassion for all people, even those who are less fortunate than we, because they're poor, because they're disabled, or they uh, don't have the resources that we have. Now look at the next line. Might have to advance that for me. Uh, the next line talks about how we treat those who are under us in authority. Now this next line does not mean that children or our servants are any less valuable or less important than we are, but these are people who have been put in charge of our personal responsibility and care. Obviously, our children are born into our family, and they need the care and attention of their parents. And because of that, our children are to respect our parents, but, but the parents are to be treating their children with respect also. In fact, many verses throughout these chapters talk about you don't treat your children like you would your possessions or your property. Now, in many cultures at this time, they did treat their children as their possession, as their property, to do with as they, as they willed. But God says you don't treat these people, even though they're under your care and under your authority, you don't treat them like property or possessions. You give them the respect and the dignity and the compassion and care that a human being deserves. And then it talks about, you might have read that it talks about how you treat your slaves in uh, Leviticus, um, uh, Leviticus 19 and verse 20. And uh, we, we think in terms of slavery as people we've captured or kidnapped and held in bondage. But more often than not, these were indentured servants. If I had uh, fallen on hard times and uh, lost all my living and could not support my family, I might back then go and sell myself to, uh, in my family to Mark and say, Mark, would you take care of us, feed us, support us, and we will serve you. But they're still to be treated with respect 
and uh, with compassion and care because they've been, they have placed themselves under your care and your responsibility. So you can see that there is a hierarchy in society, but there are, there are laws that were meant to bring about a thriving community even in these circumstances. And you'll also see throughout Leviticus 18 through 20 that there were even rules about property, about cattle, about your crops, and, uh, and so forth. And it's tied to the fact that God cares about everything that God has created. And he says, I'm going to give you this land that you are to take possession of. And if I'm not mistaken, that possession of is also like Genesis talks about when Adam and Eve were told to take care, tend the garden, have dominion over it. They were to care for the garden. They were, the garden was placed in their responsibility. And when the children of Israel went into the land of Canaan, they were to take care of that land, to take care of the crops, to take care of the cattle, because God cares about the things that he's created. He cares about this world. And that's one reason that we don't litter, and we don't pollute our streams, and when we don't dump trash in the ocean, and when we don't pollute indiscriminately our air, because that's the air that you have to breathe, and I have to breathe. God cares about these things. God cares about the work that you do. God cares about that you do good work in life and that you work as if you're working to the, for the Lord. God cares about our environment. But you know, God cares most about human beings, about you and me. And if I dump trash and throw it out my car window, I may very well be polluting your front yard. And we don't do that because I don't want to mess up your property. I don't want to mess up the place in which we have to live. And so we're called to take care of everything that is in our dominion and our influence of care. In summary then, not summary of the whole lesson, just this part, but in summary, the call is for those in authority to respect and care for and value, especially the people in their circle of influence. Children, strangers, servants, workers, the poor. The call in Leviticus is meant for society and God's kingdom, God's world to be a blessing. And we see that God in caring about all these people, he's trying to bring about order, peace, and harmony in our society. Or as we would, or as they would say, to bring about shalom, all things as they should be. And we see that God cares about justice, treating people fairly. He cares about mercy. He cares about goodwill towards others and human flourishing. So the call is then, just don't just think about yourself, but think about others as well. Now often those in authority and in power can abuse their position by acting out of self-interest. And what happens when we do that? When we only think about ourselves, we bring about much confusion and chaos, we harm other people, and ultimately that even harms us and ourselves. If I abuse my children, then guess what? 
and treat them like, oh, they're my property, I can abuse them any way I want, they're mine. Well, one day I won't have children that respect or care about their father. And so we're called to take care and think about everybody in our circle of influence, not just ourselves. And I like what uh, Lewis Smedes calls looking at other people with magic eyes. And that's kind of what it means, doesn't it? We've got to get out of just looking at you as the other person, but I've got to put myself in your shoes and see the world as you see it, with all the hurts that you have, with the position that you occupy, and then I might know better how I should treat you and how you would in turn then treat me. So don't just think about yourselves. Because the good of our family, the good of our neighborhood, our community, our city, our country, and even our society will be good for all of us. Now, this next question I want to ask is for, uh, for the audience. When we look at all this, um, who does this, what does this teaching remind you of? Does it remind you of any of the teachings of Jesus? Yeah? Probably it reminds you, uh, because Jesus quoted Leviticus 19, verse 6, didn't he? That we are to the second greatest commandment. You are to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Um, other teachings of Jesus that it reminds you of. Was anybody thinking about the golden rule? We treat, we look at others with magic eyes and see how they would want to be treated. Um, yeah, you know, if you think about it, Jesus, Jesus said these words in Matthew 7 and verse 12. He said, therefore, and well, why don't you just read this with me? Let's read it slow and very deliberately out loud together. Therefore, in everything, you do to others what you would have them do unto you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. You know, this is really truth. This is reality about the best way to live. This is the history of Israel. This is what all the law and the prophets and the teachings and the wisdom literature pointed to. The law and the prophets were a unique moral force in this world. And they were brought into being so that we would know something about God and reality in God's kingdom. And all the law and the prophets pointed to this very thing, Jesus said. This sums up the law and the prophets. That's what Leviticus is pointing to. It's pointing to doing this. You just thought it was a bunch of stuffy old rules, didn't you? That were really confining and restricting. No, it was pointing to the golden rule. And the, the wisdom literature of, of Proverbs it said, Proverbs 6, I believe it is, 16, says there are six things that God hates, seven that are detestable to him. 
a condescending look, lying, uh, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, feet that rush to do evil, people who sow discord in God's community of shalom. These things God hates. Why? Because they hurt other people. And God cares about people and about how, how we treat other people. And so Jesus, all the, the laws and the prophets were pointing to, to this, these statements, this, this kind of community. And then Jesus, this rabbi, comes onto the scene and he takes all these, the law and the prophet writings, I think it's something like 42 or 44 books, and he, he boils it down into three chapters in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he gives us the cliff notes to all the law and the prophets. And then one day somebody says, but Jesus, what are the two great commandments out of the 613? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself is the second one. He boils 613 down to two. And then in an unbelievable stroke of wisdom, Jesus takes all the law and the prophets and all these, these 613 commands and he says, in one little statement, he sums it all up. And he says, therefore, in everything, do to other people what you would do to them or what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Jesus said, don't think that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. I've not come to destroy or abolish, but to fulfill. And so this is discipleship for every one of us. This is something that we're all called to do. And we can do this with... Uh, and, and in doing it, it will take us a lifetime to learn how to do just that one sentence. It involves really everything you do in life. When you write that email at work, you might stop and ask, wait a minute, would I want that email to come to me? And how would I feel if that email was directed to me? Maybe I should put a little bit more joy, a little bit more affection, and a little bit more kindness to it. If you're having a disagreement with someone, and, uh, you know, we, we immediately go to what our rights are and how we should be treated. But what if we were trying to have a golden rule disagreement? We might say, wait a minute, how would I want to be treated if I were in their shoes? I wonder what a golden rule argument would sound like. Tracy, I don't guess we've ever had a golden rule argument, have we? But it might be something that we need to start. We need to think about. You know, part of the genius of the golden rule is that we usually focus on how we're being treated. If somebody asks us, well, how was your day today? You go, well, people treated me pretty good. No, no, the golden rule turns that all around. How did you and I treat other people? What did you do to make life go well for somebody else. The golden rule is particularly empowering because it makes us an agent and a force 
for moral good and not just a victim. See, not every day is going to be a, a golden day for us. The world is not always going to treat us just great. But every day can be a golden rule day if we want it to be. Because we can use the golden rule on people of all kinds. We can use the golden rule on people that we like. We can use the golden rule on people that we don't like. And pretty soon, if we do, we'll find that we are liking them a lot more than we did before. You can use it across all different cultural divides and generational divides. You can use it on people of skin of a different color, of gender differences, ethnicity differences. The golden rule is golden and not just a rule because a lot of rules just tell you, do this or don't do that. And there's no creativity or imagination to it. But the golden rule is all about creativity and imagination. The golden rule is about stretching who you are and, and allowing you to be more imaginative and creative in how I would like to be treated, so therefore I should treat other people as if I were walking in their shoes. I love what Martin Luther said about the golden rule. He said, it was certainly clever of Christ to state it this way. The only example he sets up is ourselves. It's so clear that you don't need glasses to understand Moses and the law or the prophets. Thus, you are your own Bible. You are your own teacher. You are your own theologian. And you are your own preacher. And if we all did the golden rule, we wouldn't need Luke and Terry and Josh. But we don't, so we do need you. And thank you. Uh, but the golden rule allows me or helps me place the other person on an equal status or equal footing as myself. They are people who have feelings and desires and intentions and dreams and fears just like I do. And so I have to get out of myself and put myself in that other person's place. Whatever age they are, whatever gender they are, from their perspective with their wounds and their heartaches and think about what would it be like if I were them in their shoes? How would I want to be treated? And I tell you, you know, the golden rule is almost like a living thing if if you really let it get inside of you and let Jesus use it, it will change and transform you to make you a better person, a new person, and one that moves from ego, always thinking about self, to love. And it's also inexhaustible because Jesus said, in everything do unto others. Now, in everything, how broad is that? You know, there was the silver rule that was mentioned in many of the ancient writings, like in Confucius, which just used the negative. And it said, don't do to other people what you wouldn't want them to do to you. But that's just avoidance. This is much more open and, and unlimited an opportunity 
for you to use your initiative and your creativity and your freedom and imagination as a force for good to go out and do all that you can to bless someone else. And the golden rule is also universal. Jesus doesn't just say use it on your neighbors and on your friends, but he says use it even on your enemies, people who may not believe like you, people who don't look like you. In other words, use it on every person who is the other, all of humankind. Those are who are your friends and those who are your enemies. Jesus taught a golden rule message. It was said of uh, it was said by Peter when he was describing Jesus' life in Acts 10. He said he was he was describing Jesus to a bunch of Gentiles, and he said. Uh, Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good. Now, how smart do you have to be to go about doing good? How much money do you have to have to go about doing good? How vast does your network have to be to just go about doing good? No life is ill-spent that practices the golden rule. And no life, no matter how rich, how successful by the world's standards, is valuable without living the golden rule. Jesus not only taught a golden rule message, but he lived a golden rule life as well. You know, if I were a leper, I would probably want to be touched and hugged. But nobody would touch lepers back in Jesus' day. But Jesus did. Children were often just relegated to insignificant parts of society, like possessions. Nobody who had any, uh, who was important, spent time with children. But if I was a child, I'd want to be blessed. I'd want to be paid attention to by Jesus. Jesus did. If I was a prostitute or a tax collector... I, and, or if I had messed up my life with a lot of sin, I would probably want to be forgiven and loved and welcomed back into respectable uh, circles of society. But nobody would invite prostitutes or tax collectors into their inner circle of respectable society, but Jesus did. And even on the cross, when he was about to die, a criminal who had just, it seems like just a few moments before, had mocked Jesus, said, Lord, remember me when you come into your, into your kingdom. And if I were Jesus, I probably would have just ridiculed him. But Jesus didn't do that. He said, today, you'll be with me in paradise. So Jesus really taught a golden rule message. He lived a golden rule life. He died a golden rule death. And he set up or started a golden rule community. And we think life is so complicated and we make it that way sometimes. We worry about what school we're going to get into. We worry about what job we're going to get. If we're getting the respect that we deserve from other people. But Jesus said life's a little more simple than that. Just go and do to other people what you would have them do to you. 
Now, you know, we gather for life transformation. And the only way we really learn how to do the golden rule is not just by talking about it, not just by theorizing about what it's like. The only way you really understand and know that Jesus' words are true and that there really is a blessedness and a reality to living in a golden rule-dominated community is not by talking about it or theorizing, but by living it out and putting it into practice. So does anybody want to guess what the practical application to the golden rule is? The practical application is simply go and do the golden rule. When? Every day. Where? Everywhere. To whom? To everybody. How? With Jesus' help. We start at home. Start with the people that are closest to us and try to live a golden rule life. What would it be like for me to bless my wife? How would I want her to treat me? Then I should put myself in her shoes and treat her that way too. I decided that to kind of help get myself geared up for this sermon, I would try to play a game and live a week of the golden rule myself. And uh, you can ask Tracy about how well I did that. Uh, but at least on, I came to the end of the week and I really hadn't done a good job with it. So a friend of mine asked me to come up to Little Rock to go to a fundraiser for the Ukraine. Now he had done a lot of help for the Ukraine and he really wanted my help. He'd invited a lot of big fundraising people that could, that could give to their cause. And I didn't want to go. But I said, you know, he's doing something good and he really needs me to be there. So I decided, well, I'll fly my plane up there and I'll go. And I did. I arrived a few hours early. I turned a five and a half hour drive into about two hours. That was good. So I got there early. And I, I always like to go to Cracker Barrel. So I went there. And I decided, as I was sitting there, I'm going to make this a golden rule moment. And so the, the young lady that came up was kind of preoccupied and busy. But I said, I can tell you're really busy. I'll just make it real simple. How are you doing? Are you doing okay? And I asked about her. And she paused and she looked a little shocked that I was asking about her and her family and how she was doing. Is everything okay? I'll make it easy for you. Here's what I want. And... and you know, she started engaging, and even as busy as she was, with the smile that came across her face, I knew that I had really touched her, and it felt good. She also gave me free coffee, so that, that didn't hurt either. So see, when you live out the golden rule, it comes back to reward you too. And uh, it really made her day, and we said a blessing one to another, and then I left. I went over to the fundraiser, and I said, and I'm going to make this a, a really a golden rule environment. I met the founder of Dillard's or the CEO of Dillard's there. And I said, man, I love your stuff. I, I grew up in Dillard's clothing. We still give gift cards every year for Christmas. If we don't know what to get you, you're getting a Dillard's gift card. And I said, thank you for your company, you know, and all you've done. And, you know, I just went around to each person, went around. There was a big newspaper man there. And I said, you know, it was the newspaper and your, or the news that were covering the war in Ukraine that really made me start wanting to go because I saw people being mistreated. So thank you for what you're doing to get the word out and news in our world in an honest way.
You know, it, I tried to bless every person's life, and it really met with, with great success. And we bonded with, I bonded, I felt like, with almost every person there. And it made it a wonderful opportunity. And then, of course, I missed my flight back. And Josh gave the lesson for me. And thank you for giving me a golden rule experience last Sunday and covering for me on short notice. Well, uh, I, I think I need to bring this quickly to a close. But I want to just <clears throat> reiterate, as you live the golden rule with Jesus' help, you're going to find that life is growing inside of you and you'll get a little less preoccupied, a little less self-centered. You'll uh, become a lot more loving your imagination will begin to stretch and grow in good ways. People will want to be around you more. You'll have more joy in your life. You'll find that you're, you're really investing in other people's flourishing, and they will then be invested in yours as well. And you'll come to know the reality of living in God's kingdom is real, and it is a blessing to live in the kingdom of God under these kind of this kind of spirit of the golden rule, doing to other people what you would want them to do to you. You'll find that you'll have a new partnership with Jesus, and you'll learn all, uh, all uh, you'll learn what all along the law and the prophets were pointing to all those centuries ago, and what the book of Leviticus was meant to bring about. In the, among the children of Israel. The golden rule under Jesus' power is so strong and so available that that is how we're going to end the service today. Not right now. We'll have the communion and a, and a final song. But after that, I'll come up and I'll give you one last send-off from this message of the golden rule. Thank you.